to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. All right, welcome back, everybody, to Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm Lee Johnson, and I'm joined here with my co-hosts, Dr. Rick Lee and Dr. Charles Peterson, and for today, our very special guest, Dr. Eddie Glaude, Jr. It's great that we have Eddie here with us today, and we're going to give him a longer introduction in a minute, but today our topic is going to be the public intellectual. Before we jump into the conversation, as usual, I want to get everybody's drink orders and hear what you're ranting or raving about this week. So, Charles, why don't you kick us off? What are you drinking, and what are you ranting or raving about this week? Oh, thank you, Lee. Because I hate myself, I will be ordering a Mai Tai in a can. (laughs) I don't know... What the hell's going on with this new thing of cocktails in a can? But I'll take a Mai Tai in a can, and I'm going to rave about Herschel Walker. I'm raving that Herschel Walker is a great example of the importance of reproductive freedom. (laughs) I see what you did there. Heisman Trophy winner Herschel Walker is proof positive that, damn it, we all need to be able to make decisions about when and where we procreate. I want to throw it to our guest, Eddie Glaude Jr., a good friend of ours. He is the chair of African-American studies at Princeton University, the host of a newly dropped podcast called History Is Us, a six-part series that is streaming on all platforms, produced by Cadence and John Meacham Productions. Eddie, what's your rant or your rave, and what drink are you having? Charles and, and everyone, it's great to be with you. So I'm going to order a Jameson on the Rocks, a splash of water. That's nice. my typical drink. And I'm raving about something a little less serious, the fact that Steph Curry should be considered one of the top 10 basketball players of all time. <laughs> Oh, is there a debate for that? Who's debating it? Some some people are debating it. Some people are oh, debating it. Dumb people. Dumb. Herschel Walker, probably. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Rick, what about you? What are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about? Well, Noelle told me she just got in a shipment of Polish beers. And so I am drinking Miło Suave. By the way, Fortuna Brewery, call us, or should I say, Proszę zadzwonić do nas. And today I am ranting about the narrative that Mike Pence is a hero. Cosign. And I might as well just throw in Bill Barr and all the rest. Yeah, you stood up one day, but what about the rest of the 365 days each of those four years? I don't think the man's a hero. He finally did his job. So I'm ranting about Mike Pence being a hero. Lee, what about you? I think that I have mentioned before that during COVID, we got new neighbors who opened a microbrewery here in Memphis. Today, I'm going to order one of those beers from Campline Brewery. I'm going to order this beer that they have that's called the Peel Out. And I don't usually like fruity beers, but this one's pretty good. I am raving today about this new docuseries on Netflix that's called Web of Make-Believe, Death, Lies, and the Internet. It's a six-part anthology, and it's dealing with a lot of crimes, really, that take place almost exclusively on the internet. And there's some really good material in there. I want to recommend, in particular, one of the episodes, which deals with what they call sextortion. It's fascinating and actually horrifying to watch. So that's my rave for today. 
All right, as I mentioned at the top of this episode, today we are going to be taking on the subject of the public intellectual. We're really glad, obviously, to have one of America's leading public intellectuals, Eddie Glaude, with us. But Charles, before we get started, why don't you give us a kind of overview of what we're going to be talking about today? We're going to dive into the idea of the public intellectual, which has been a long-standing figure, certainly in American culture. But we find that, I would say, over the past 30 to 40 years has taken on even greater importance as we've seen more people of color and women begin to move into the mainstream academy and the various issues, concerns, and I think the relevance of the public intellectual has only deepened. And I thought that would be a great discussion to have to think about the history of the public intellectual and also ask the question, what is the future of the public intellectual in this new media and communications circumstance that we find ourselves in? Let's just ask a very basic question so that we're all on the same page. Eddie, in your opinion, what is a public intellectual? Well, that's a really straightforward question. <laughs> you know, I take it that the public intellectual is that person who brings his or her skill sets to bear in the context of trying to think seriously in public with others. And it seems to me that that's not about certain credentials necessarily. But it's about a certain kind of thoughtfulness that guides the deliberative work that is necessary for persons to engage in intelligent action. And so, to my mind, this thinking seriously with others in public, that is outside of my own private domain, outside of my own professional task, but this broader public that's at the heart of American democratic life, in, in my case, is at the heart of the work that we do. And, and to me, it goes back to that classic essay by Emerson, the American scholar, but we're trying to, in some ways, think about this place, to help it imagine itself on different terms, to offer languages for us to think about our interactions and what matters, what's just, what's good, and the like. So the short answer is thinking seriously in public with others. In your response there, and also in the Emerson essay, there seems to be a kind of implicit tension between, you called it a skill set, I think Emerson has some less positive words sometimes to talk about it, namely the kind of training that often can make us insular, but is required in order to be historians, philosophers, linguists, biologists, and so on. Between that kind of technicality and the general discourse of the public. And so I'm wondering, how do you see the public intellectual balancing those two sides of, I guess on the one side, it would just be the public and the other side would be the intellectual part. How does that balance work out? Well, it's hard. I mean, we live in a society, particularly our current moment, that is defined by increasing specialization and professionalization. That specialization evidences itself in very particular ways in the academy, right? I make a distinction between being an academic and being an intellectual, mm. and that distinction matters. But mm -hmm. as an academic, we know in spaces of higher learning that there are increasing specialization where you have particular languages, specific kinds of conversation within philosophy. You find yourself, whether you're going to SPEP or whether you go to the Easterns or whether you, you know, however we describe, right? There's going to be different kinds of conversations depending upon the specialization. I'm more interested in the generalist. 
Edward Said has this wonderful chapter in the Reef Lectures on the representations of the intellectual, where he calls for us to be amateurs, where he's resisting specialization mm. and professionalization. People who are thinking broadly, who are reading deeply, who are trying to step outside of these narrow internecine wars that define our special spaces where we argue and fight and write and those narrow publics, and to think more broadly and generally to speak to people who don't necessarily speak the language of Dewey or the particular concerns of African-American studies in the little niche that I'm in. So that's what I mean. So I think we have to battle against specialization and professionalization on the one hand, because it narrows the sphere of our concern and reach for a kind of generalist positioning, but understand that we bring the specificity of our training to bear in our effort to be generalist, right? You don't lose your bibliography in that moment, as it were. (laughs) (laughs) That's really interesting, Eddie, because I think sometimes when you hear people talk about public-facing intellectual work, that they're either meaning public-facing in the sense that you're using whatever specialization you have to take up issues that are of concern to the public. That's Mm. one sense. And then the other sense is what I think I heard really strongly in what you were just saying, which is more like speaking in the vernacular. I teach at a LaSallean University, and we have this principle of education in the vernacular. And I think that that's another way to think about public-facing intellectual work or being a public intellectual. Here's my concern, though, and I have this question for everyone here. What's the difference between a public intellectual and what is now called a thought leader, which I think is not a public intellectual? I want to hear what I have to say about this one. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to ask that same question. Eddie, what you were just calling a generalist, I think in a previous season, Charles had celebrated in a positive way what he called the dilettante. And I think these two come together in really interesting ways. Hmm. Yeah, I can't separate the thought leader from influencers. I can't separate the thought leader from someone whose job is to give you a hot take who has something to say Mm -hmm. about every single issue that's arising, but there's not the thoughtfulness about it. There's not the introspection to give an informed view. They're just saying something to push a conversation to keep it moving, if not push it in a particular direction. But let's just contribute to what seems to be trending right now. And I'm going to go ahead and drop this statement or this thought or this editorial versus the public intellectual who there's a certain level of rumination that I would assign to the public intellectual if they're serious about the work. One of the things that I kind of resent about thought leaders is that it does seem like their attitudinal approach to both problems and peoples is, here's a problem, here are some people, they need a leader. (laughs) It's not a thinking with, and they're putting forward the idea of being a leader first, setting a trend, influencing whatever, and not actually engaging in the ways that Eddie just described and you both have described, engaging in problems and engaging in communities and engaging in projects that are collective. You know, when I think about a thought leader, this is an old example, but my father used to have this book in the dashboard of his car. You remember this, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, right? And I think that every book like that is a thought leader book. Sorry, looking at you, Stephen Pinker, but you know what I'm saying? No, and I think the emphasis is heavy on the leader part to the detriment of the thought part. Mm -hmm. The rumination, as Charles put it earlier, is something that seems to be lacking. And Eddie, what I heard you saying was that to be a public intellectual, 
does not necessarily mean to say what the people want to hear. Right. And, you know, the noun matters, right? One is a leader. The other is an intellectual. What's the substantive difference between those two? Mm. What does it mean to be committed to not only the life of the mind, but to the free exchange of ideas with the understanding that you might be wrong? to try to expand horizons, not only of your interlocutor, but yourself. Sometimes the idea of a thought leader seems to me so marketized, so yeah, caught up yeah. in not only being an influencer, but also leading trends, as it were, you know, to give the influencer a different kind of inflection. And, and that doesn't seem to me the task of the public intellectual. What does it mean to think seriously in public with others? It means that there is an investment in the ethic of dialogue, of conversation, and what emerges out of that? I don't want to use that old language of growth, but you get the point. How conversation creates the conditions for us to be better, better people, more thoughtful mm. people. And I don't think that's the impetus or motivation for thought leaders necessarily. What a public intellectual can represent in a very real way is a deep investment in a democratic sensibility and a democratic discourse versus this thought leader who seems to be completely invested in a certain type of commercialization. Sometimes, yeah. From my perspective, you can't quite have the democratic impulse with the commercializing instinct, right? Those are always going to be at loggerheads. And Charles, it may very well be the case that markets are describing people as thought leaders as opposed to those of us who actually take up being a public intellectual. And sometimes that comes with certain kinds of cost in our profession. What does it mean to be seen as someone who's thinking in public with others? For those of us in the academy, somehow now you're no longer as serious as you once were. So one is being labeled and the other is being embraced. I completely agree with you. And I think that if we're going to engage in the world in the way that you're describing, we can't pretend as if our engagement in the world is costless or that it's always necessarily consensus-based. Mm -hmm. And I think that thought leaders do both of those things. Mm -hmm. You mentioned, Eddie, the ways in which the academy may not necessarily be embracing or supportive of a public intellectual. Who can we talk about? Who can we think about as those who have come before us in the tradition of being public intellectuals and their relationship to the academy for their time? I know for me, in terms of the work I do in Africana philosophy, a lot of people that I recognize and embrace as philosophers were A, in many cases, dilettantes, or they were interdisciplinarians. And they also, in many cases, had very challenging relationships to the academy. Mm -hmm. But I want to think about if those difficulties were different from the types of difficulties a public intellectual may have now. That's a really complex question for a variety of reasons, right? In my head, there are certain figures, right? I'm a student of Cornell West. He was my dissertation advisor, you know, and I watched him become Cornell mm -hmm. West. I like the way you phrase I that. I knew him pre-race matters and post-race matters. He was doing public work all along prior to the publication of Race Matters. And then how that shifted and changed, not the nature of his career, but more importantly, how he was received, his reception. And so West is an example for me, as well as Edward Said, as well as Susan Sontag, all of whom are very thoughtful, who come out of a particular kind of intellectual tradition. Angela Davis is another figure in this regard. See, right, Mills is another figure in this Roll regard. Roll call. Right? <laughs> right, right. So part of what we see is that there's a kind of political and moral concern that stretches the scope of their interests. And then there's a way in which they engage in a certain kind of scholarly work that is excellent and deep. When you read Culture and Imperialism by Edward mm -hmm. Said, right, it's not just Orientalism, right? There's beginnings. There's an arc to his work, the way in which he's engaging Foucault. But because of this political and moral concern that drives the work, 
the arc of the work is different. Mm -hmm. And so that's one way to answer a part of the question. Right. The difference, however, is what happens to that work or those concerns in an increasingly professionalized and specialized space? What does it look like to do this work, whether one is a generalist like John Dewey in his own way who could do professional philosophy, but also is engaging in the kind of public intellectual work around education, who's doing certain kinds of work around race with regards to NWSP and the like, right? Not much, but he's trying. What does it mean to do that kind of work under neoliberal conditions, which is where we are at the academy, yeah. right? And when I say that the academy is overdetermined by neoliberal sensibilities, I mean that we are all selfish persons in pursuit of our own aims and ends in competition and rivalry with one another, and we're rewarded as such. So the difference is the context, and sometimes you can be rewarded for it, sometimes you can be punished for it. And now the reward can actually incentivize people not being serious, running towards a more public-facing kind of work wanting to be rewarded for that public. They want now their blogs to be considered as part of their tenure files <laughs> and the like, right. <laughs> right? And we see universities and colleges competing for those public-facing persons, you know, skewing faculty salaries as a result. And then at the same time that that's happening among a younger generation of scholars, there is this kind of demand for a level of seriousness that frowns upon it. So you get this kind of schism. And those of us who are caught in between have to figure out how to be serious in the midst of this, as well as public facing in the midst of it all. Hey, listeners, before we have too many drinks and it slips my mind, if you can't catch us at the Hotel Bar, you can catch us on Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow our HBS hosts individually on Twitter to catch their all fair thoughts. You can follow Charles at at C underscore F Peterson. And Peterson is with an O, not an E. O, not an E. Rick is at, at Rick Lee Philos. That's Rick Lee with two E's and Philos spelled like half of the word philosophy. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. The doctor's abbreviated and Lee spelled L-E-I-G-H. I'd like to go back to Eddie's distinction of the intellectual from the academic. One of the things that to me is really important is not assuming that all intellectuals are academics are housed in universities. You know, when people ask me for an example of a public intellectual, honestly, my first answer is Bernie Sanders. I think that Bernie mm. Sanders is an intellectual. He is obviously not only in public service, but he engages in conversations that, as Eddie says, also include bibliographies, <laughs> you know, when he's trying to forward our common understanding of a problem that we have and the solutions that we might come up with to solve it. So I think that there are ways to think about the public intellectual where the intellectual is not an academic. I think maybe even there are more expansive ways to think about the public intellectual. And I, I feel like I'm going to get some pushback on this. So just let me say it. But I think that we could think about, for example, the Occupy movement as a public intellectual. We could think about Wikipedia 
as a public intellectual. There are lots of ways where we don't have to tie this to a person. This is one of the resistances I have to the Emerson consideration of this, and also the one by Alan Lightman, which I know we all looked at, is that they all seem to be stuck on this individual intellectual engaging with the public or leading the public or thinking with the public or whatever. Sometimes the public itself thinks, groups think, collectives think, and that's something that I think we ought to really consider an example of a public intellectual as well. Hmm. It sounds like you're saying that what fundamentally makes a public intellectual is engaging, broadening, expanding, inserting certain questions, ideas into the discursive public square. Yes? Yes. But I feel like you're about to trap me, so... <laughs> no, no, this is not... <laughs> no, I'm, I'm trying to work through this because I think it's an interesting idea. So the examples of public intellectuals that we have used have, for the most part, within the context of their times, been what we would call progressive or forward-thinking or people who are, who are trying to expand democracy or critical of hegemonic institutions. Can the same thing be applied to other movements, right? So can we say that MAGAs are public intellectuals? Because there's an intentionality, they're trying to transform the public space in a certain way, they're trying to engage in what they see as legitimate, though we may disagree, we certainly goddamn disagree, certain types of critiques of what they see as the dominant powers. And I'm just trying to see how far can we expand or how inclusive is the framework you've established? I wouldn't include MAGA because it fails on the intellectual part. It violates at just the basic axiom level, what we consider to be veritable intellectual work, veritable intellectual engagement. So no, I wouldn't say MAGA is a public intellectual. Now, we might consider the Black Lives Matter movement in the same way that the Occupy movement, I would say we could consider a public intellectual a public intellectual. Because again, maybe it does go back to what Eddie said is like, they got a bibliography, right? It's like, it's like the works are cited there and they're based in facts. They're not based in conspiracy theories. If one were to push it, if one were really interested in that sort of thing, one could begin to construct a bibliography of sorts for these right-wing movements. I'm not saying I agree, but what I would say is someone like a Steve Bannon is really thinking very seriously about these questions of democracy and freedom yeah. and the dominance of a particular class of people. Or Peter Thiel. Or, or Peter Thiel. Who actually does know how to quote his sources, yeah. And they're the foundation in many ways to what we're now yeah. calling MAGA. And I like what you brought up, Lee, because I'm also thinking about what do conservative or what do what we call right-wing public intellectualism, what does that look like? It looks like Ayn Rand. We, That's it's exactly Ayn Rand, what it and, looks and it's like. William Buckley. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's Leo Strauss to some degree exactly. right, in terms of yeah. right, his articulations. And I would add George Will to that conversation. I think he is, and I mean, decreasingly so because of MAGA, a public intellectual. And that might be a moment to support Lee's point, namely that the MAGA movement is always at loggerheads with every intellectual, even on the conservative side of the spectrum. Right. It seems like it's an anti-intellectual movement from the beginning, and I think then they take down every intellectual, no matter where they fall on the spectrum. You know, I understand the impulse driving Lee's democratization of the category public intellectual, right? Wanting to get us out of this kind of preoccupation with the individual bringing her skill sets to bear on public issues seriously. But I'm wondering if there's a kind of slippage here that may confuse matters. So movements do intellectual work, 
they always have mm-hmm. done intellectual work, right? So there are ways in which movements, whether on the right or left, if that spectrum is useful, where they offer us vocabularies to see ourselves in different ways, to describe moral conundrums in different sorts of ways so that we might orient ourselves differently to those moral conundrums. They're doing all sorts of things in terms of creating the conditions for the emergence of new kinds of subjects, right? So what happens as a result of the 60s movement? There's a different kind of subject that emerges as a result of that. But what happens as a result of the conservative backlash to that movement? Think about the ways in which it has been theorized and how Reaganism emerged. So movements do intellectual work, but to describe them as public intellectual seems to me to be a kind of stretch. A stretch in the sense that there are particular persons within them that are writing, that are talking, that are thinking, that are building platforms for the dissemination of those ideas in particular ways that seem to be very individualized and can be held to account. It's very difficult to say, you know, Occupy was wrong. (laughs) Well, (laughs) what does that mean? As opposed to me saying Buckley is wrong. (laughs) Say it again louder for the people in the back. (laughs) Or we can think about a whole range of, you know, Strauss is wrong in a certain way on a certain level of But it's very difficult to say that in a substantive way about particular movements. Well, two things really quick. I think that it's a fair criticism to say that my trying to stretch out this category of the public intellectual is involving a lot of slippage. It 100% is. But I don't think, A, that the category depends on having someone to point to to say that person is wrong. I don't think that's necessarily a criterion of the category. And B, maybe in this case, I do think Occupy is a very good example because unlike the 60s, Occupy was a movement that in the course of establishing itself, established itself as a collective subject. That was the whole point of Occupy. It was like, none of us are the leader. None of us are the speaker. All of these thoughts are decided by consensus, et cetera. So nobody can point to anything Occupy says and say that person is wrong. If it's wrong, then the whole collective is wrong. And in some ways, that's the power of the movement. But let me defend Eddie from a different angle here. What if we give up the individual and say, okay, that's wrong? I think the focus of Occupy on the 1% was wrong. I think the idea was wrong. Now, because as you, Lee, I think rightfully outlined, Occupy was from its beginning a collective, it never had an idea. The idea has then no home. It has no purchase. It has no defender in such a situation. And I think Eddie's earliest definition of the public intellectual had to do with this thinking about ideas with the public, ideating along with the public. And I don't think Occupy does that. I mean, okay, I don't want to go to the mat on this, but (laughs) Occupy did have platform statements. All I'm trying to say in summary is that it might be useful for us when we're thinking about the public intellectual and for exactly the reasons that Eddie was outlining, because we don't want to become too enamored with this great men of history, because it's almost always men. Mm-hmm. We don't want to become too enamored with this genius theory of the public intellectual. It's useful to think about the way that our traditional ideas of the public intellectual interact with actual phenomena that we see of the public thinking. Mm-hmm.
Can I just start by recalling something Eddie said, which now just strikes me in its importance for this discussion? And that is that we've not really been focusing on the public and Eddie, a while ago in the conversation, you started talking about the political and ethical moral vision or insistence that belongs to public intellectuals. And I think the reason for that is because what makes a public a public is that the common is the issue always. Mm -hmm. And whenever the common is the issue, then we are necessarily talking ethics. We are necessarily talking politics. Right. And so I think that would be something that would hold all public intellectuals together. The reason for entering into public debate, the reasons for having this conversation with the larger society is mm -hmm. to be concerned about where exactly the society is heading or where it needs to go or where it's been. At the heart of it all, the work of the public intellectual is centrally located in the question of the public, in the question of democracy, or if you're in an oppressive regime, the problem or the lack of democracy or the problem mm -hmm. of autocracy, so forth and so on. Yeah, the good, the right, and the true. Exactly. And for me, this is all consistent with how I understand myself as a pragmatist. When I read John Dewey's essay, The Influence of Darwin on Philosophy, and the arc of that essay is that the philosopher at her best is bringing her skill sets to bear on the problems of men and women. Obviously, I've updated his language. <laughs> so it's not just simply a matter of concern around metaphysics or ontology or da -da -da -da, you know, the professional questions that define what philosophers do. But what does it mean for us to bring our skill set around distinction? What does it mean to bring a certain quality of mind to bear on the question of education? And it doesn't mean that you have to be philosophically trained. I'm going back to pull the last segment in, right? So Imani Perry wrote a wonderful essay from the Chronicle of Higher Education titled The New Black Public Intellectuals, where she expanded the reach, where it wasn't just simply those of us in the academy, right? Particularly yeah. for people who are coming out of a tradition where we did have access to the academy for much of the 20th century, at least for the first half of it, right? We didn't have access to at least majority white institutions in that regard. So there's a vibrant intellectual tradition in African-American circles that exist outside of the Morehouses and the Howards and the Spellmans, as well as outside of the Harvards, the Yales and the Amherst and the Rhodes and the Oberlins and all the other places we know, right? Princeton's. And so exactly. <laughs> so I find myself when I'm on television trying to figure out how to bring the full weight of my bibliography within the context of a soundbite. Mm. How might I take this conversation in a different direction? I'm always trying to figure out ways of deepening how we're talking about the politics. So, you know, at one moment, we're talking about Fox News, and the next moment, I'm talking about the fourth estate. Mm -hmm. And how does that shift the conversation in such a way? When we talk about the collapse of democratic institutions, gerrymandered House, dysfunctional Senate, politicized judiciary, imperial presidency, executive branch, and what is the role of the press? Well, I'm going to invoke de Tocqueville here. Mm. So the arc of the work, the arc of the work is driven by what comes into view as the sphere of my moral concern. And it's not limited to a narrow conversation among those of us who are concerned about a finite range of books and arguments. So I'm not just going to have arguments at SPEP. I'm going to be trying to do something else. <laughs> <laughs> but also, you're not going to have arguments about who's in the leadership in the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. Right. So that's a SPEP of its own making, <laughs> like that kind of horse race and in insider politics, which I hear you saying that doesn't spark your moral curiosity. I actually get in trouble because I'm not interested in it <laughs> in the public domain, right? So if I make the case that 
the ideology of Reaganism has revealed itself to be bankrupt. COVID exposed it for what it is. And then I say, well, if that's true, then the Democratic Party that came into being in response to it may very well be bankrupt. Mm. And then all hell breaks loose. But it seems to follow. Yeah, right, right. But it just wasn't wonky enough is the problem. (laughs) I mean, I think that, Eddie, you're really good at this. And the people who I consider public intellectuals are also really good at this, which is a whole different skill set, which is just to use the example that you gave before. When you're on TV and you're they're talking about Fox News and you say, let's talk about the fourth estate. Now, I think we all know that average Joe at Kroger in the dairy section probably doesn't know what the fourth estate is. And there's a certain kind of skill to being able to explain quickly and clearly in the vernacular what the fourth estate is. And that to me is the great benefit of public intellectuals is to give everybody out there that vocabulary in a useful way to, as you say, take that bibliography, put it in the vernacular in the course of addressing a common problem. You know, I remember when I was in graduate school and a good close friend of mine, Howard Winant, who co-authored with Michael Omi, Racial Formation in the United States, classic text in the sociology of race. And I had just come back from Britain. I was enamored with the Black Cultural Studies folk with Stuart Hall and Paul Gilroy. And I remember Howie asking me this question, what's the politics of your writing? Because I was writing a certain kind of theory, you know, posty toasty stuff. (laughs) And he was like, what's the (laughs) politics of your writing? What's the politics? What are you you trying to do? Do you have a theory around the avant-garde prose? What are you doing? And part of what that questioning led me to ask myself, well, do I want my mother to be able to read what I write? Yeah. And my mother dropped out of school in the ninth grade. But in saying that, it wasn't about dumbing down anything. It's about the value of a certain kind of clarity. Right. And so oftentimes what happens is that we speak in shorthands or we speak in the languages of our particular profession. And we know that there's only a small group of folks who can actually trade in that language. But if we actually take Quine seriously and think that explication by elimination actually works sometimes, or you just take the word out and just explain what you mean, Mm -hmm. explain clearly what you mean, then you could use the shorthand. So it becomes a part of the pedagogical work that we do. But that has to be rooted in, I think, Lee and Rick and Charles, it's rooted in a different kind of interest, that I'm not just interested in my brand. I'm not just interested in performing. I'm actually doing work in these public spaces yeah, that reflect the skill set that I bring to bear. Otherwise, what the hell am I running my mouth for? But would you say that that skill set, because it seems to me that that skill set is a skill set of the intellectual and not necessarily of the academic. And in many cases, I think the training of the academic is absolutely not to develop that skill set. <laughs> yeah, no, we train to not do exactly what I just described. Exactly. Yeah. We're not even trained to teach, despite the fact the vast majority of us go into teaching. So I want to follow up on that in terms of thinking about who has been recognized, you know, by the mainstream, whatever that means. Mm. But can we talk about the ways in which the entrance of marginalized voices and peoples, how that's begun to affect how we think about public intellectualism? And I like the idea, Eddie, of having a particular audience in mind when we do speak to the public. Like, who are we trying to communicate with? 
right? So I want to talk about the ways in which the variegation of identities and perspectives and backgrounds, how that's influencing what we call the public intellectual. It had a tremendous impact. And of course, it has generated a certain kind of response. You know, typically when we hear the critique of identity politics, it's really about the way in which the public space has expanded as a result of the political interventions and writings of formerly marginalized or marginalized groups, right? So it's really fascinating to tell the story of how the notion of public intellectuals has been detached from the New York intellectuals, from the Lionel Trillings and the like, right? Those intellectuals who were so important, for example, in the formation of James Baldwin, for example. Right. Mm-hmm. What happens when we shift from thinking about public intellectuals in light of that cohort to Cornell West becoming the face of public intellectuals and the object of a certain kind of visceral attack by Leon Wieseltier in The New Republic? Uh, I'm dating myself. That was in the early 90s. You're, you're dating all of us. Because <laughs> all of you are nodding. All of you are nodding. Right. I, I right? remember that piece. Yeah. Right? Because that story is a story of declension. That here you have excellence that's broadly accessible, and now you have the performative, right? This is Wieseltier's argument, a performative that doesn't bring any substance, a mile wide, an inch deep, that kind of nonsense, right? So on the one hand, we see an expansion, but on the other hand, we see claims around declension, claims around commercialization, claims that these folk are really just out for themselves. And that makes sense given the way in which the argument around marginalized groups is often received and the nature of the responses to those arguments. We're always thought to be speaking from some specific place to a very limited audience, as opposed to offering ideas that can speak to the nation broadly. That last statement you made, Eddie, reminds me, so you've recently just done work on Baldwin, Mm -hmm. and I know you have a deep appreciation of Baldwin, but he seems like a perfect example of the kind of thing you've been talking about, that even in his own lifetime, sure, he was speaking to the community from which he emerged, but also he was more widely read than that, and he was speaking to other people. And to go back to an earlier episode of our podcast, the dude also had style. There was something about his publicness that allowed him also to be an intellectual in public, to speak from and to a particular community, but to speak from and to that particular community with an eye toward universalization or an eye toward something beyond. Mm. Can I push back a little bit on this embrace of the progress that we've made for a minute, though, because... Inverted commas, inverted commas. Yeah, 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 right. Big, fat, scare quotes around the progress that we've made. Yeah, because I do think that there still is a lot of work to be done in who we hear as a public intellectual. Mm -hmm. I'll just Mm -hmm. speak from my own perspective. I do think that it's still the case that in order for a woman to be recognized as a public intellectual, that they have to speak in a kind of masculine vernacular. You know, and by the way, I am not equating masculine rhetoric with men or a feminine rhetoric with women, but it is the case that often when women speak, there's a very quick move to their being shrill or emotional mm-hmm. or whatever. And so there's an imperative on the part of women to, as much as possible, to suppress anything that might be seen as feminine in the way that they present their ideas in public. And similarly, there's been a kind of, you know, sort of two-handed criticism 
of public black intellectuals, for example, that goes either Obama version, which is the sort of Uncle Tom argument, which is like you just pick up this singing preacherly rhetoric when it's beneficial to you, right? But Mm. that's not actually how you talk. Or the, I don't know if you know this guy, Chris Smalls, the guy who organized the Amazon union, mm-hmm. who's extremely smart, but does not speak like a academic. And almost no one calls him a public intellectual. They call him an activist. They don't call him a public intellectual, although he certainly is. Obviously, all of us can recognize that there's a certain rhetoric that is still embedded in the idea of the public intellectual that is largely white and male and mm-hmm. academic, not necessarily intellectual, but academic. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with everything you just said, right? I want to go back to a, when we made the distinction between thought leader and public intellectual. Thought leaders are often described as thought leaders. Public intellectuals are often self-described, even though we Mm. can be described as one. Mm. So Chris Smalls can think of himself as a public intellectual, and it doesn't matter if he's thought of as one, to my mind. I can have the self-conception of my intervention. I think of myself as a public intellectual. It describes my vocation. This is what I do. When I was publishing my first trade books, I remember saying to my editor at Crown, I was like, look, Jack, I got to go back to the academy. You're not going to empty this of intellectual content. Well, we can't engage in this citational practice fine, but they're going to have to be able to find the citation in the formulation. They're going to have to see what I'm doing. But I had to fight to be able to be in both worlds so that the books could travel and traffic in both worlds. So being described as a public intellectual is not as meaningful to me as thinking of oneself as one and acting accordingly. But being described as a thought leader matters (laughs) all. It it is what ultimately matters. Money, 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 money. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) I like your falsetto, though. That was pretty nice. (laughs) That is really interesting to me that you think that a public intellectual is a self-description. It never occurred to me before those words came out of your mouth to think, who names a public intellectual a public intellectual? Because it's driven by the arc of the work. What is the Mm. motivation of the work? And it seems to me, because when I write and I talk and I think, the sphere of concern is always to this broader publics. That's how I imagine what I do when I sit in my study. That's what I'm thinking about. And so whether someone describes me as such, I don't. I can give less than a damn. I love this because <laughs> it makes public intellectual weirdly into a verb. It's something that you do. Dude, it's not no, something that it. you I'm, are. I'm a yeah. pragmatist after all. No, and and you use the term vocation earlier to describe it. Mm -hmm. One thing I do want to come back to is sort of what are the venues for the work for the public intellectual? Because, Eddie, I got a bone to pick with you about people who want to count blogs for 10 years. (laughs) Just just prepare your bone to be picked in a moment. I'm I'm waiting for it. I'm waiting for it. Hey. We couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip, keep it under two minutes please, to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. 
So we sort of nodded toward this earlier in the first segment in terms of the contemporary dynamic of the public intellectual, but I want to dig deeper and I want to ask, in the age of a splintered media environment where information is coming at the public from a thousand different sources, in the age of the thought leader, in the age of the hot take, where is the place? What is the position? How does the public intellectual function in the midst of an extremely chaotic informational environment? It's a very difficult question to answer. I think the anchor for anyone who thinks of himself or herself as a public intellectual is to always be committed to seriousness and to always create the conditions under which a kind of depth can attend the conversation. So this podcast fails on the seriousness part, but <laughs> No, because, you know, serious, seriousness <laughs> is tied to play. Play doesn't exclude seriousness, right? Because the temptation is always for clickbait, for surface reading, you know, long form is disappearing in media. But what we have to do is create the conditions for further reflection. That's the task, it seems to me. The way I wish I use Twitter, right? I'm echoing Van Jones, who said, Twitter is the distribution of distribution. How do you use it to drive information to publics as opposed to a kind of micro reality show, which you tell everybody what the hell you're doing every single minute of the day? But how do you use your social platforms to create the conditions for a much more in-depth conversation? So in a moment that is quick, that is surface, that is brand centered, I think the way in which we inhabit that space is to be serious, even in play. And to be always concerned with adding depth to the places in which we inhabit. And so I work in print, I work television, and I also work in audio, right, in radio and the like. And in each segment, what I've done is I've created the conditions under which I can be fully myself. I can be thoughtful. Mm -hmm. I can bring up references folk don't know. They expect it from me. But it took a while for that to happen. I think this concept of depth that you bring up is something really important because I think in many ways as intellectuals and particularly for us who are philosophers, as philosophers, we are in a certain way superficial, but we're superficial in that we're trying to bring what normally lies in the depths to the surface for reflection. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think what you refer to as the speed of Twitter and other contemporary media, only Bob on the surface and there is nothing from the depth that is being reflected in that bobbing on the surface. Yeah. You can imagine Horkheimer and Adorno going, see, see, I told y'all, I told y'all. <laughs> I want to hear Horkheimer say, I told y'all. <laughs> Eddie just spoke my love language. <laughs> but seriously, though, the days of reaching the public with a well-formed argument or idea by being published in the paper of record or being interviewed by Dick Cavett on one of three channels mm. in primetime are long, long, long gone. We have right. the avenues that we have for reaching the public now, which are infinite, really. I mean, anybody can reach everybody. But the problem is, is that it does require gaming the system in many ways to get at least to the point where those ideas actually get taken up by the public platforms on which they are first introduced. And that is a game. That is a game that is very different from 
you know, have I penned such a convincing case for X that the New York Times is like, we must publish this? Or Dick Cavett is like, this is a person of serious import that I must speak to. Mm-hmm. Now it's just a different game. And Eddie, if you could imagine yourself not at Princeton, I wonder if you think that you would have the kind of control over the activity of being a public intellectual that you do with the credentials that you have. No, one would be naive to suggest otherwise, right? I mean, the way in which I built my public intellectual career had everything to do with my connection to Cornell West. Mm. And this was outside of the mainstream media, right? It was really me working with Cornell and Tavis Smiley in the State of the Black Union. Oh, yeah. And Cornell inviting me to come. And then suddenly I'm in the midst of that work. And now I'm in a very specific community. I'm interacting publicly. I'm on Tavis's radio show and doing that work. And then I pinned a piece entitled The Black Church is Dead for the launch yeah. of the HuffPost religion page. I wouldn't have done that if I had not met Paul Rauschenbusch, who was the assistant chaplain at Princeton, who asked me to do it. That piece jumps into the New York Times a year later. Because it's created this amazing conversation that bubbles up to the mainstream a year later. Mind you, I'm in the basement of churches all along. And that's when an agent saw me and said, I think you can write a book. And I said, sure. Then I had to drop that (laughs) agent and found another agent. And then I wrote Democracy in Black and things changed. So the only way that could happen, of course, is that I had the resources. I mean, Princeton made $12 billion in the market last year. $12 billion last year. Right? No, 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 no. We're we're all, we're all absorbing that. That that was the stunned silence. We're all absorbing that. We're all very familiar with billions. <laughs> so that leads me to another question sure. because it sounds like even in the way that you describe the evolution of your own career, even you recognize that it involved a lot of chance and luck. Like you knew the right people at the right times and those sorts of things. So going back to your comment in the last segment that the public intellectual identifies him or herself as a public intellectual, as opposed to the thought leader who is identified as such by the public. Let me ask you to make a case to the ordinary person out there who is not the student of Cornell West, who's not got an appointment at Princeton, who has not got agents running them down to write books. Make the case for them to still commit themselves to the work of the public intellectual, even though the public may not call them the public intellectual. Whether all of that happened to me or not, what would motivate my work would still be the same. Mm. So my very first book, Exodus, Religion, Race, and Nation in Early 19th Century Black America, began with an argument between me and Cornell as a graduate student. Cornell was talking about Black nationalism, that Black nationalism (laughs) never had an institutional presence. And I said, in a typical brash manner, your church is a nationalist institution. And then he said, ah, brother, that's a promiscuous understanding of nationalism, brother. That's a promiscuous (laughs) understanding. And so I wrote the book. And the epilogue to the book contains the trajectory of everything I've written since. So no matter what has accrued to me over these years by being Cornell West's student and being in Princeton, at the heart of the work are a set of questions and concerns that has given the work life beyond its initial publication. And that has nothing to do, it might have something to do with Chicago publishing it, but it has nothing to do with all the connections. It has something to do with what's motivating the work in the first place. But let me put a a little bit finer point on my question. So I said, make a case for the person out there who doesn't know Cornel West, who thinks of themselves as a public intellectual, to continue to engage in that work, even if other people don't recognize them as a public intellectual. 
why do that instead of what they're going to be rewarded for in their job, which is having entirely esoteric conversations in academic journals that only 15 people read with their colleagues? Uh Why do what you're doing and not publish your parish game? So, you know, it's like, I know this music isn't going to make me any money, so I'm not going to play it, even though it's coming from everything in me. That's bullshit. Preach. Right? So you're going to just respond to the market forces? No, no, no. I think part of the dangerous allure of neoliberalism is for us to lose sight of our passions, of what makes us tick in pursuit of what is seen as valuable. I love that answer. Right? I wouldn't give up music because of what would pay me. So I would say to the young scholar who's out there grinding, if this is at the heart of how you understand your work, keep doing it. Otherwise, the academic world is going to grind you to dust and you're going to be miserable. And then you're going to start doing some damage to some younger folks who are coming up behind you. Hmm. Scene. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) No, 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 you're right. That's it. We just got a word. (laughs) But I was going to say, it seems to me that you can't make that argument to people. They have to make the argument to themselves. Mm. Either I'm true to myself or I'm not. And I think that same thing gets posed to the scholar today who maybe only have 20 followers on Twitter and maybe some assistant professor at some small community college in Northeastern Idaho or whatever. Either you be true to yourself or you just... You don't do anything because anything else is going to be a miserable existence for you. There's a lot else you can do besides publishing peer-reviewed academic journals that very few people read. We have all of these new media. I mean, we're doing this podcast. It's about philosophy. We put it out once a week and sometimes it's better and worse, but it's pretty solid content every week. You can blog, you can write op-eds for so many outlets now Mm -hmm. that are actually very serious outlets. Look, most of us who get PhDs are going to be in academic institutions Mm -hmm. and can't say, I recorded four podcasts this month, so please, sir, give me tenure, please. But you should be able to say that. You should. Yes, you should. You should. But we don't live in the redeemed world world. And so I think we would be remiss to not point out the measure of being a public intellectual is a completely other measure than what the institution of academia does in order to give you tenure, promotion, and so on. Right. Hopefully, people like Eddie and Yuli are going out there pushing the envelope in terms of what might count in people's tenure dossiers. I think that we're pushing on opposite ends of that envelope. No, 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 no. I want want to say something. I want to say this, though. This is really something really important for me to say. I've had an extraordinary career that was not public-facing initially, even though the arc of the work has always been that. I've been the president of the American Academy of Religion, chair of a religion department, chair of African-Americans that built a department at Princeton. I've published scholarly work. I'm 53 years old, and it was at the age of basically 50 or 49 that all of this stuff happened to me. When I published my first trade book, they were like, I want to introduce you to a broader audience because they knew I already had an academic career. Mm. The difference is that some people want to jump to where I am at the beginning. Remember I said we have to bring our bibliography to bear on the problems confronting men and women. If you haven't done the work, if you're not engaged in a kind of consistent reading practice, if excellence is not defining how you understand yourself as an intellectual and you want to be public facing, now we have to ask a different sort of question. What are you trying to do and for what ends and for whom? 
That's point one. Point two is that we exist in a particular environment where there's measures of excellence and measures of failure. We know that the first book stuff has to change because the academic publishing industry is collapsing. And we know that they're not publishing first manuscripts like they used to. So the idea of a one, two book minimum for tenure makes no damn sense given the pressures of the market. But what happens to the notion of peer review, peer assessment, of driving conversations that define what we do if a blog stands in for scholarly work? I just don't see that as a measure of the kind of depth that we're calling for. This is where I agree with you, Lee, I think. The nature of tenure assessment must change because the nature of the environment of publishing has fundamentally changed. Yes. You're exactly right. We 100% agree on that. We may have slightly different understandings of the ways in which those measures need to change. It is the case that right now we know that there are problems with publishing. Mm -hmm. We know that there are problems with peer review. And the relationship between peer review, publishing, and tenure. There are deep, well-documented problems. Just you have to trust me that I have a bibliography. I'll put it in the episode notes for this podcast. I'm not going to elaborate it here. Okay. But two things that we have to think about as we're thinking about how these measures are going to be changed. One, how important is it for colleges and universities to encourage their faculty to be public-facing academics, Mm -hmm. to be public intellectuals. And if they're interested in that at all, they're going to have to incentivize it. And the best incentive is tenure. So that's one thing. The second thing is universities and colleges are going to have to start looking at how they measure evidence of scholarship in dramatically different ways. Sure. So I told Eddie that I had a bone to pick with him about <laughs> blogs. And so I'm just going to use <laughs> blogs because he just used it as an example. But of course, I don't mean that if I have a personal blog that has four readers two of whom are my friends, and I published something on there that I should be able to turn in one of those blog posts as Mm a part of my tenure Mm -hmm. file. But there are people out there, younger people and older people, who have blogs that have millions of readers and who can demonstrate in the comments to their blog, in the way that those blogs are cited elsewhere, that their readers are peers. And I think they should be able to submit some of those essays in their tenure file. And if their colleagues can't read those and make peer-reviewed judgments about them or can't send them out to people who are experts in the field and say, is this good scholarship or not, knowing that, you know, 100,000 more people have read this essay than will ever read anything that's published in an academic journal, I think that that's something that we really have to think about. Now, that is not most blogs, but I do think that there are exceptions and these are things that we need to think about. I think, Lee, you're also pointing, perhaps unwittingly, to an old standard that used to be there. I'm sure there were people at Harvard or Princeton or Yale that the white dude wrote one essay, (laughs) and then all of his colleagues were like, no, but this is the seminal essay on the word periphrasis in (laughs) Aristotle's philosophy. (laughs) What I'm saying is you're pointing out that there was an old boys club that afforded a certain flexibility that really matters when it comes to the issue of being a public intellectual. Especially given the fact that we have to be realistic about the job market 
today. Oh, there are a lot of people who are teaching four fours, five fives right. that have no research leave, that have no research funding. You know, there's just material conditions that we have to consider in the way that we're rethinking how these things count. And I don't want to make Eddie Glaude more of an old fogey than he already made himself sound like <laughs> by saying this, because I think that you're sympathetic to this as well. You know, just as we had to adjust our citational practice when the Internet came along. Remember how they had to show us how to do it differently? Like, what does it mean to cite this online source? And now right, we have right, it in the right. Chicago manual. We're going to have to figure this out. But mind you, the days of John Rawls being able to sit on theories of justice, yeah. how long has he did? Those days, don't they're not coming back. Right. Right. No, You're not no, going to have that no, kind of time. No. John Rawls would not have gotten tenure. No. He wouldn't have a job if he was in our academy today. And we're not going to comment on whether or not we'd be better off because of that. But go <laughs> right, ahead. right. Because that was on the tip of my <laughs> that tongue. Was, uh, that was on the tip of my tongue. <laughs> I want to say this to younger scholars that at the heart of what we do, oh, I know I'm going to get in trouble. Do it. At the heart of what we do is the work. That's true. Right. Yes. That if you don't get the work done, you're going to be stuck where you are. And so you have to create the conditions. Even if you have a 5-5 five, five or 4-4, four, four, as hard as that may sound, you got to get your work done because that's the only condition of possibility for you to move in this neoliberal space to get your work done and to get your work done in light of what motivates you the most, right? So I say all that to say, you're right. Y'all are right. We got to figure this out. In the interim, get your work done. But people like you and me and Rick and Charles who do have tenure, we got to change what counts as work. I concede that to a certain extent. <laughs> we have to look at what is actually being counted as scholarship in real classrooms. So if I assign Eddie Glaude's book in my classroom, everybody recognizes that that's scholarship. If I assign six episodes of his new podcast, History Is Us, which I will do, that should also count as scholarship for his tenure that he got 100 years ago or whenever it was that he got it. <laughs> you know? But that should also count as scholarship. And the same thing, if you write an Aeon article or a blog post that has gotten such uptake that I've been convinced as an expert in the field that this is helpful for teaching my students material, then that should count as scholarship. Everything that I expected and anticipated has been realized. This is the revealed conversation. Before we go, I want to throw it back to our guest, Dr. Eddie Glaude, and ask Eddie any final thoughts, any takeaways from this for us? First of all, it's been just a delight. I'm not going to drink a Mai Tai in a can, ever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try this Polish beer. And the fruity beer, eh, I'm not sure yet. But this has been wonderful. And the only thing I say by way of closing is that, you know, the moral and ethical concern that drives your work is at the heart of your self-description. And so I describe myself as a public intellectual because I'm deeply concerned about the well-being of people with whom I live. And that is not only people in my immediate vicinity, but the people that I call my fellows. So thanks so much for allowing me to run my mouth about that. Thanks for coming, man. Well, normally I call a cab, but as the least paid person here, I'm going to let Eddie call a cab for us instead. Wait, but before Eddie lays down the MSNBC money, could I just remind you all that you could sponsor us on our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash hotel bar sessions. And also we mentioned Eddie's book on Baldwin. I just wanted to mention the title. It's Begin Again. So Eddie, can you call a cab? 
Nah, y'all go home by yourselves. <laughs> y'all go home by yourselves. Me and Eddie are going over to the public square to be public intellectuals. <laughs> no, I got you. I got everybody. I got you. I'm calling the cab now. <laughs> All right. Catch you guys next time. Take care, Big John. Oh, 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 o